Uh, good morning. Uh, grateful to, to see your lovely faces here this morning. Um, I'd like to maybe give you a little window into my life, maybe some things about my life that you don't know. And I'm just going to give you one today, but I, I'm uh, a bit of a self-proclaimed Disney princess expert. And let me tell you why. So growing up with two young girls, uh, we uh, on repeat had watched the Disney princesses almost ad nauseum at times where there was just, and what we would do is not that we would watch them all, but we would get locked into one and it would be the go-to for months on end. And so there's certainly a, a top 10, but for, for me, uh, Tangled makes its way up to the top. Rapunzel, great story, loved it, just, just awesome. And that, that, that scene where she's in this pub and they're singing that she's got a dream. I mean, I can hear myself singing those things and watch my kid dancing. This is great stuff. But then we got to introduce our kids to the classics, right? There's Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella and Snow White, like all of these fantastic stories. And, and the, the joy in watching these stories with your kids is that you are 100% certain that it's going to turn out good, right? There's, that's why they call them fairy tales, right? Is that you're certain that the outcome of no matter how dramatic the situation is, whatever dilemma the princess finds herself in, you know that the story's going to end good for her. I wonder if for a moment we thought that what if they did like an expose of Snow White 20 years later, right? <laughs> TMZ shows up and they have this huge expose about Snow White and the challenges with the dwarves. Grumpy files a defamation lawsuit against Snow White because, because she says he's really hard to work with and complains all the time. Or Sleepy finds himself chronically lazy, but he doesn't really have a condition. He just doesn't want to work. Prince Charming is not so charming anymore 20 years later. And Sneezy is unavailable for comment because he's sequestered because of COVID-like symptoms. Right? I mean, you wonder about all of these things. Oh, and then, yeah, Bashful remains timid and unable to be on camera. And so he reserves the right to not say anything. Just wonder if, if life really ends up the way that you would think it would in the context of fairy tales. And every single one of us would say, well, no. I mean, it's great, and it's a feel-good story, and we're excited about the fact that there are great things that happen even in the midst of difficult times, but at the end of the day, it never really ends up the way that we think that it would. Nehemiah 13 is that chapter for us this morning. We have all of these amazing things that God did through Nehemiah and Ezra's faith and this challenge of rebuilding the wall and the joy of, of the word of God being central back in the people of God and they're committing themselves back to the truth of, of God's love and, and knowing that there's change and transition and the people of God are growing in innumerable ways and it's exciting. And there's a sense in which they're dealing with their own sin and the sin around them and they're, they're recommitting themselves to the commands and covenants of God. All these things seem to be doing the right things. Then Nehemiah 13. 
So the central question for us this morning is how do we deal with outcomes that aren't what we would have expected when we've done the right thing? Like imagine in your own life and just look through the context of your own journey and you would say to yourself, I've made the right decision. I've acted righteously before God, not, not perfectly, but in the context of God's word moving in my heart, I've, I've moved and I've done things and I've said things and I've loved specifically well and I've exhibited God's compassion to the, the world around me and those who are hard to be with. I, I haven't done it perfectly, but I look back on my life and I've, I've made some of the right decisions. And at the end of the day, the question that we face is, how come nothing changes? That even in the midst of making the right decisions and attempting to love well, things don't work out. That's where we see God working in Nehemiah 13. It's that challenge where there's not a fairy tale ending, to say the least, but it's not just that there's not a fairy tale ending. We're left sort of just this gap of whether or not things are really going to work out. It ends really with just Nehemiah praying. And, and he prays four times in this text, and the prayers are essentially always the same. Here's what he says. Remember me. I tried. I mean, that's what it feels like. Like, I gave it my best shot. It was a mess. Things didn't work out the way that I thought they would, but God, don't forget that I tried. I wonder how similar our prayers have been through the context of our own journey. I'm not perfect. I've done the best that I think that I can do, and I, I tried. It just didn't work out. God, don't forget that I gave it my best shot. Where are we in the midst of God speaking to that very moment? Let's read Nehemiah 13 together, and I am going to read the whole chapter because there's some great parts in this, right? You move through like verse 25, and, and as you, if you haven't read it before, it's awesome. And I'm not saying that it's a verse that you should memorize, but Nehemiah goes MMA on these people. Like he beats them and pulls out their hair, and I'm like, I don't know where that is in the context of church discipline, but it's kind of exciting to just see how he sort of gets all crazy about this stuff. So, so hang on, because this is a great chapter. So let's, let's read it. Uh, I'll read it for us this morning. Chapter 13, starting in, in verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Something you want to just highlight, okay? He's pulling them back to remember that here's what you need to know about the character of God. He turns what the world would curse into a blessing. Verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah. Remember this guy? Tobiah and Sanballat were the dudes that were just regularly harassing God's people as they were attempting to be faithful. They were bullying them, accusing them. They were hiring false teachers and false prophets to stop the work of God. 
Now you realize that Tobiah has some relationships that he's about to leverage. Verse 8. So what Elisha did is he, he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, the wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions of the pri- for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave for the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I've also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and says, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurer over the storehouses, Shelmaniah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mathaniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. First prayer. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading the winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on the donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem itself, exclamation point, right? Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing performing on the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now we are bringing more wrath on Israel and profaning, by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19. As soon as it begins to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Here it is. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. And this is not in prayer, right? (laughs) For the time on that they did not come on the Sabbath, then commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates and keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember, this is also my favor. Oh my God, spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love, second prayer. In those days also, so three sins he's addressing, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, 
Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each other's people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. And also I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons and not take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against a God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jedidiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, who was also the son-in-law of Sanballat, there's the other guy, therefore chased him from me. Remember them, O God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign and established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his own work. And I provided the wood offering at appointed times in the first, for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. So four prayers, three of remembering me, uh, one of remembering them, right? Don't forget how bad they've been. But you get this scope of this narrative, and it just finishes where we're like, okay, what's next? You're, you're left wanting, or at least in some parts wondering, well, what happened and what ends up happening? And so what we do as we encounter this text is we, we have to come to grips with numerous different things. And the first thing that I think really surfaces from this text is that humanity is predictable. Meaning that when you, you look at the scope of these things, the leader begins to, to go away for untold reasons, either by death or some other appointment. And so Nehemiah is no longer there continuing to beat the drum of God's faithfulness. And so all of the work that he's done and, and thought that he built in, built in and entrusted to even the priests had all of a sudden, because he's gone, compromises were on the threshold of every decision that they made. There's just waiting in the wings for the leader to be absent, and then the people just make whatever decision they want, completely and totally disconnected from everything and every truth that they'd been given. It's as though not only are they forgetful, but instantaneously the voices that they hear are the voices of compromise, that it's easier to just make decisions and do what needs to be done in the moment rather than taking a few seconds or some time to just ask God what he wants of them. The desire is not to live in faithfulness. The desire is just to live as though they can manage their lives in some way where they can experience the very things that they want to experience. So they make compromises almost instantaneously as Nehemiah is no longer there. The only person praying in this text is Nehemiah. So humanity is predictable, and humanity lives inside each and every one of us. So let me suggest to you this morning that without God's active grace, each and every single one of us refer to the big three. I'm going to call them the big three because I think they stand as the substance of the reasons why you and I have the greatest tendency to compromise. 
the big three, self-reliance, self-preservation, and self-righteousness. The big three, (laughs) self-reliance, self-preservation, and self-righteousness. So here's the suggestion this morning that I think we get clear indications of specifically Eliashib the priest, but all of those who are making decisions where they're profaning the Sabbath and they're making sacrifices for the sake of other people that are kin. There's just nepotism running rampant. So they're, they're deciding that in the midst of this difficult thing, even though Tobiah and Sanballat had been bullying the people of God and didn't want this wall built, now all of a sudden they move out the things of God and then they move in their very kin and the desires of what they want. They, they're just motivated by their own things. And so self-reliance. I can make whatever decision I want to make that best benefits me because it just makes sense in this snapshot of time. And all of us have that tendency. We're forced into situations or we hear of situations or we think of situations that surround us and our first inclination in our flesh and our heart is to say, well, I think I can manage this. I got this. I can do what needs to be done. There's enough strength and ingenuity inside myself that I can fix this problem. Humanity is predictable. We do it all the time. It's the reason, notoriously, we don't ask for help in difficult situations until it gets almost too difficult. When we find ourselves struggling in the context of marriage or we're in high school and we're being bullied and we want to tell on our friends or we find ourselves with this peer pressure or we're at work dealing with this uh, demanding boss and we're gossiping around the water cooler about all of these things and we're always thinking that in some way, as long as we have enough allies around us, we can manage the situation. And, and what Nehemiah would, would want us to, to remember is that you can't. You, you, you can't. Neither can I. Like We don't possess in and of ourselves what we need to fix the dilemmas we face. We need God. And that's the first thing that gets missed. And even the priesthood, Eliashib is this priest who's supposed to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. And what ends up happening? Compromise after compromise after compromise. We all find ourselves where the big three are living and breathing inside. There's self-reliance that lives inside my heart. And that self-reliance would remind me and tell me and convince me that things aren't as bad as they really are and that I can fix it. Self-preservation would tell me that I know what the best outcome for my life is and so I can work for it. I know what I need, and so I will work towards that end to get what I think my heart desires and needs the most. Humanity is predictable because our outcomes are always so much less and so self-focused that God really isn't the end of our deepest desires. Humanity is predictable. Self-righteousness then kind of seats itself in our heart where we would say, at least I'm not like them minimizes the gravity of our own sin and our own struggle and makes the reason why we feel what we feel about what someone else has done to us. And it doesn't mean that the pain and the wounding and the sin of others that have come our way isn't real. Don't even minimize that. But we can't minimize our reaction to the sin around us based on the sin that's done to us. 
can't do it. Sin lives and breathes inside each and every one of us. And so when we think about those big three and the reality that just coming to the surface on such a regular basis as we're looking at the canvas of our lives, we're realizing that humanity is predictable. It's almost similar, I would call it the kind of the Goldilocks syndrome. And here's what I mean, not that I always want to go to the children's books, but sometimes there's just tons of truth, right? So Goldilocks, you get this situation where she comes in and she's deciphering and deciding what's best for her based on how she feels about that particular situation. So when she's choosing a bedroom, she jumps in and she said, oh, this, this bed is too soft. This bed is too hard. Oh, this one is perfect. Our view of humanity is much the same. There are some of us, many of us, that might have a view of humanity that is making that same analysis, that it's, you know, this bed is, is too soft. We find ourselves wrestling with the idea that, you know, everyone has their own issues and their own struggles, and so let's just live in this atmosphere where there's not really any particular standard. We just got to do what we got to do in the context of life just to be able to make it through. Or the other view of humanity is that it's just too hard. There's a rigidity where grace no longer really has much of a say, but there's this comparison that because someone else's struggles aren't my struggles, I can deal harshly and judgmentally in an attitude towards them where I don't even believe that if life-changing grace entered their life, that life, that, that grace is actually going to change them. They're too far gone. Things are too difficult. But then we place that scope of those things over the top of our lives, and we go back and forth. If I were to ask you or you to ask me how I address and think about my own sin, I would have to be honest and say, it depends. Tell me what sin. Was I a little harsh with my wife? Soft play, sure. We've been stressed. Life is busy. It's complicated. There's a lot of different things going on. La, la, la. It's not that big of a deal. But then you deal with it real hardcore issues of what take place inside of my heart. And there's a, there's a, a, a move to the other way. I, I'm, I'm so far gone. I can't even believe that I would think the things that I think or do what I think that I do. So I, I scale sin even in my own life. And I realize that humanity is so predictable because I'm so familiar with these tendencies inside my heart. And so what has to happen? Like even when we do righteous things or even understanding our own sin, sometimes when we're so harsh in the reality of not even being able to receive God's grace over our lives, we distance ourselves from the community of faith. We feel shame and guilt on a regular basis. We wake up in the morning and we say, I'm never enough. Or we wake up in the morning and we say, you know, I have people in my life and their life is treacherous because of all of the bad decisions they made. Thank God I'm not like one of them. <laughs> All of those categories are the big three. Self-reliance, self-preservation, self-righteousness, living and breathing in those things. And that's where Eliashib comes in. And, and here's the situation that exists in the context of his life. And here's what I want to give you. So I want to give you a definition of sin from the context of this particular passage that I think is helpful in understanding what sin truly is. So verse 4, the situation is that Elisha the priest has basically moved out this really nice storeroom that was supposed to hold all of these things that were specifically dedicated to God. 
and moved them out and moved a a relative in. So Tobiah now gets the space that is supposed to be allocated and occupied by the things of God alone. Okay? Those are the first few verses. So here's sin. I would suggest that sin at its very core is the reality of um, expecting or, or allowing someone or something to take the place that only belongs to God. Sin at its very core is giving a place for someone or something that belongs only to God. This is critical because this stands as a mirror and an example of every motive that we have in our heart when we default to sin. There is something that has captured our attention in such a way that it occupies a space in our life that belongs only to God. So theologically, what belongs to God? Well, you do. Your entire heart, your makeup through faith in Christ, he's purchased you as his child. You're adopted into his family. And so in the sense of thinking about us making decisions of how we live our life without asking God what he desires of us is allowing the very things and the very wants and needs that we have inside of us to be met by other things instead of God. Because of that, it's sin. And all of us struggle with it My default sin and struggle is one that's based on approval. I can be motivated by making good and godly decisions, and yet the deep desire, if I'm honest with my own self, is to hope that in making the right decisions and doing the right thing, I'll win the approval of others. And so what occupies my heart? Well, the reality that I already have approval from God that I'm his child, that I'm washed clean and purified through faith in Christ, that Christ's death was sufficient and enough for me on the cross, that I can be valued and approved of by the God of the universe. Why is that not enough for my heart? Because inside my heart, there are spaces that I've allocated that belong to God and I've given them to other things. That might not be your struggle. It could be control. It could be power. It could be any comfort. All of us are motivated by something. And the analysis of this text is to push us to ask ourselves, are there places inside your heart that belong to God that you've given to other things? Let me answer for you. Yes. Now, I don't want to give you a way out. And nor am I going to take you outside and beat you and pull your hair. But, but I'm saying that there is a reality of what happens when we look as poignantly at sin as we can, we come to this awareness that those big three, self-reliance, self-preservation, self-righteousness, all of those areas of our own heart are actually motivated by giving our lives and giving our heart to other things that belong to God. So if that's the basis for how we begin to understand sin, then what begins to translate next is the other sins that seem to be just sort of notorious for the people of God. So he deals with Eliashib. It's kind of a Jesus turning over the tables moment. He cleans out the dude's house, throws out the furniture, kicks him out, and restores the very thing that needs to be there, the very things of God, back into the place of God. And then he looks in verse 10 and he finds that the Levites, the other priests, hadn't been 
really getting paid for what they've done. And so there's been an issue of disrespect that has taken place and they've had to go find their own food. But in the process of those things, they're, they're committing the very sin that had led them here in the first place. They've grown complacent with the things of God. And so they start working on the Sabbath and there comes self-reliance all over again. I don't really feel like I have enough. Sure, God is my provider, but maybe he's just giving me the opportunity to do those things and I'll provide for myself. And so they're, they're working on the Sabbath that had been specifically allocated for a place for them to worship God. So they're, they're allowing the other things in their life to take the place that had been solely and completely sectioned off by God himself. And they're giving their time and their energy and their effort to the things that aren't of God. And so what happens? There's just this complacency that runs over and over again. And here's what happens. We all grow complacent. And when we grow complacent, the cost of being complacent is that our affections for God are robbed. Let me tell you something. Life, it's a thief. It will come to steal the very thing that God had planted in your life. Just thinking about the canvas of our life itself and all of the decisions that are before us and that we have to make. Any decision that is before us can be a God-honoring decision if we ask God his counsel and he leads us to the place he's calling us to go. But so frequently we're deciding to do that on our own. And you know what the biggest danger is? The decision that you and I make works. It actually ends up working out okay. And so then we think to you know, ourselves, well, if I just keep doing those things and figuring it out on my own, we grow complacent and our dependency and need for God grows dim. We wander. We begin to be deluded by the cares of the world and our affections for Christ diminish. Complacency is at the threshold of all of our lives. Sometimes we use just stress and the demands of life for just so much. I don't know what else I can do. I'm doing the best that I can, except I've never really asked God what he wants of me. I'm just doing with what's before me. So let me ask, how do we know if we're growing complacent? Let me give you just one category. I would say that you know you're going complacent, or I know I'm growing complacent, when the focuses are on behaviors above relationships. Here's what I mean by that. When we think about our relationship with God through faith in Christ, often we have this scale. <laughs> and the scale is, here's what I've done good, and here's what I've not done good, and I'm hoping that what I've done good has outweighed what I've not done good, and so that God will see that I'm trying and outweigh the bad with the good and then just work. And if he works because the scales are moved in one direction, then if I keep moving the scales in those directions, then I can allow God to comply with my needs. <laughs> that's a dangerous place to be, and complacency has already rooted itself in all of our hearts because that's not how it works. Let me give you a suggestion. God meets us wholeheartedly and fundamentally with grace. That's different than God owes me because of my passion. See, Nehemiah, I think, we're getting a window into his heart, and he's struggling here. He's been faithful. He's made good decisions. At times, if not often, he has an accurate view of God. And he champions 
the cause of God in the people of God. And he's even mobilizing them and encouraging them. He's been a source of hope. Ezra the priest has come in and preached the word of God and God has worked in numerous and critical and amazing ways. But then somehow in some way there's a shift and Nehemiah at some portions of this text has believed that it's because of his work that things have worked out well. And now that he's not there, everything's gone astray. And he has to ask himself, well, God, where were you? If I had been there, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> How many times have you said that over the course of your entire life? And yet, the reality of what God is reverberating in Nehemiah's heart and even in the nation's heart is that God is infinitely and consistently and always present, always aware, always watching, and using all things to draw everyone to himself. Here's the most critical part of this text, that if you've heard nothing, besides my princess stories, because that's my favorite, but if you hear nothing else, I need you to hear this. Sin and failure never have the final say. Sin and failure never have the final say. What I mean by that is that you and I could be any, at any part of our journey in our relationship with God where we're either consumed by guilt and shame or we're living our life based on self-preservation, self-righteousness, and self-reliance. We're doing what we need to do and it's actually working and things don't seem that bad. And in the context of all of those things, there's this reminder that absolutely resonates through this entire text. And it comes through the four prayers of Nehemiah. Remember me, O God. Based on what? Your steadfast love. Your commitment and covenant and promises to yourself that you never deny your own character and you've always promised me that you will never leave me nor forsake me. And none of that is contingent on whether or not I've screwed things up. Whether or not I've made the worst decisions of my life doesn't allow me to then say, God can't use me and has nothing to do with me anymore because I've blown it. Sin and failure never have the final say. There's this constant rhythm where he reminds the people of God of the decisions that have been made in the past. He says, look, Solomon made the same mistake that you did. You remember when these people made these decisions? Here's how it ends up. And you would think history would be the greatest teacher. I don't want to do what Solomon did. And yet, history isn't a great teacher because we don't look at it. We don't remember the God of the God who consistently pursues and actively dispenses grace on the lives of his people. And in the process of those things, we grow complacent and we forget. We forget how good God is and how worthy he is of all of our attention. The deepest desire is that we would be honest enough to admit that there are places in our lives that belong to God that we've given to other things whether it's fear of the future or control for specific outcomes. And God is drawing us in those very moments to a place of faith. And he's wooing us with this constant reverberating truth. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light there's some here this morning and maybe myself included that need to lay down some things 
we've been carrying trauma and challenge and a weight and a grief and a shame and an embarrassment that has shaped our story. And the same plea that Nehemiah has for himself and for his people. Remember me, O God. You know what the abiding truth in that is? God never forgot you. (laughs) The, The plea for God to remember was more about Nehemiah needing to remember who God was rather than God needing to remember who he was. And we screwed up all the time. And so the reality of the consistency of God that just needs to be a rhythm of our life is that through the truth of the word of God and the reality of what Christ has done on the cross, sin and failure never have the final say when they are connected with the life-sustaining, life-transforming power of the cross. Jesus died to make you his. Let us trust that. Would you pray with me?